thoughts expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I'm happy to be back in the studio this afternoon um, with a very special guest who's going to be calling us in just a moment from New York City. Her name is Amanda Hesser. Uh, Amanda is the co-founder and CEO of the kitchen and home company Food 52. Uh, Amanda also spent uh, many years as a writer for the New York Times. And um, I think I think she's running a little bit behind, so we're going to get her on the phone in just a moment. Um, if you're listening to the show and you'd like to learn about our lineup and all of the guests we have coming up, feel free to go to www.womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And, and of course, we encourage you always to follow our social media pages where we post a lot of uh, the great work that our guests are doing. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Women to Watch as well. Um, so I think we have Amanda on the phone. Hello. Okay, terrific. Amanda, hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. I, I'm assuming you're calling from New York this afternoon? Yes. Good. Yeah, from Chelsea in Manhattan. Okay. And uh, are you at your offices there? Yeah. Great. Well, it's very nice to have you this afternoon, and, and I just wanted to point out for our listeners that we have a bit of a personal connection. Um, I was told to give my regards to you from the family. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How nice. Yes. Um, so that, you know, um, the listeners understand that uh, my in-laws and your parents were good friends for some time years ago. And um, so they send, in particular, my mother-in-law sends her regards and, and my husband, Chip, as well. That's great. Well, please tell them I say hello as well. I will. I will. So I, I'm really, you know, excited to, to have you for uh, an hour this afternoon and talk not only about, you know, entrepreneurship and, and your work at the New York Times, but a little bit more about you and your own personal story growing up in Scranton and, um you know, just get some insight into what led you to to the place you are today. You've had quite an interesting career. Um, so I understand you did. You grew up in Scranton, the youngest of four, and uh, Dad was an entrepreneur, which I'm assuming has had some influence on you and your direction. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk just for a few minutes about your upbringing and what life was like growing up with uh, Mom and Dad and, and Dad owning a car dealership. Sure, I'd be happy to. So... I was born in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and when I was uh, three years old, my dad, who had been working at car dealerships, uh, quit his job, and um, he found a dealership in Scranton that was for sale and uh, loan, you know, took out a loan from the bank and essentially risked everything and moved all of us <laughs> to near Scranton and uh, made a go of it. And so he actually even like bought our house before my mom even saw it. So it was one of those things where a lot, there were a lot of moving parts 
uh, four young kids, no yeah. money saved. My parents didn't go to college. And uh, so there wasn't, there was no safety, um, safety cushion and, uh, or safety net. And uh, that was really, <laughs> you know, my, my siblings are older than I am. I'm the youngest. Mm-hmm. And so really, you know, from my very kind of, you know, first years of being kind of aware of my surroundings, this, this was, this was what our, our kind of life was like, which was, you know, really my parents had to make it work. And, uh, you know, we were in Scranton in the seventies was, you know, there was the oil crisis. Star business was not great. Um, Scranton, even though it's a small city in Northeastern Pennsylvania has a bit of a, you know, a kind of small town, protectionism where you know we were outsiders even though we were just coming from moving from a few counties away and we didn't know anyone and so it was really um a tough road I think for uh quite a few years and then in fact five years after we moved there uh the the car business um there was a fire and right. it, um yeah. it yeah, it burned to the ground. Mm. And, you know, a car, <laughs> the thing with a, a car dealership um, catching on fire is that it's filled with cars that are filled with gasoline. And so once a fire gets going, it's really hard to control. And so it really was, it's one of the largest uh, fires the city has ever had. And, wow. it, you know, it burned much of a city block. And, you know, my father, because again, he didn't have alternatives and he didn't have the safety net. Um you know, the, the family story goes is that he rented a trailer and put it in a, on a property across the street that he was his used car lot, and he was open for business the next day because wow. he wow. had to symbolically, I think, tell himself as well as, you know, the community that, that he wasn't going to let this get him down. Mm-hmm. And so those are sort of like the early years of my upbringing, and I think obviously that had a big effect on me and, you know, my character and my sort of sense of what it means to, um, you know, kind of work hard and succeed and that, you know, it's not, it's, it's as much about grit as it is about, you know, an original idea or, um, you know, sort of business savvy. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. I would say, you know, what a risk he took. Would you, you know, would you describe your dad as a risk taker back then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. in, in pretty much all ways, which, of course, you know, didn't make for like the um, calmest household. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but it is really uh, it is amazing to sort of see, you know, it's one of those things that kind of um, you absorb unconsciously a lot of the, um, you know, the understanding of like the stresses, but also the rewards of, of really, you know, working to um, create and own something yourself. Yeah. And, um, but it, it took me, it took me many years to, to, to realize that I had that in, you know, I had an appreciation for it mm. and a d- desire to be an entrepreneur myself. Um, but yeah, so, you know, otherwise it was a pretty, um, you know, regular childhood. We all went to the public school. Um, and, um, my, my sister went to art school. My brother uh, studied business, and he now runs the car business and mm-hmm. uh, has for many years. And, um, you know, we were the first generation to in, in my family to go to college. Okay. And didn't wasn't there a time when your mom took over um, the car dealership after your dad passed? Well, there were, yeah. I mean, we had some sort of 
rocky moments throughout. My dad became really ill, actually, when I was um, 10. And there was a year that they moved to California so that my father could get a heart transplant, which these days, is, I mean, obviously, it's a major surgery and a, and a, a big, you know, health crisis for, mo- for anyone who goes through it. But this was 1982 when it was still actually quite experimental. Yeah. And so there was that year when actually it was um, things were very much up in the air. And then again, 10 years later, when my dad um, died and my mother um, had to sort of take over the business. And, you know, it's a family business. So, you know, my brother worked there in the body shop when he was young. My sisters uh, both worked um in the office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was the only one actually in the family who didn't work at the dealership. Oh, is uh, that which right? Is kind of strange given, yeah. given that, yeah. Um, because you were the youngest but, perhaps? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And my, my mother worked there. She, you know, she worked in the, um, the leasing agency and, you know, it, it's definitely a uh, all hands on deck kind of thing, which I, you know, I don't think was unique to the time period. I think if you have a family business, that's just the way it is. That's right. Um, you, you, you've got to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I, I love what you said about kind of, I think as a child um, of an entrepreneur, you are, you were young at the time, you know, especially when that fire occurred, but you do absorb things kind of unconsciously. And then you tap into that later in life as an adult. So perhaps you weren't thinking, oh, I'm just like my dad, you know, I'm, I'm determined and, and a go-getter, but um, it shows up later as a, as a business person, those qualities. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, having kind of come off of that childhood, to me, the dream was to then work in a big, big company, you know, where um, it, it seemed to me like the natural next step, but in, and, and that is what I did. In fact, I ended up you know, working at the New York times for many years mm-hmm. and it was a, I had a fantastic job, but you know, at my, um, at my core, I think I was not totally happy there because I think ultimately I'm much more of an independent um, kind of entrepreneur minded person. And it took me many, you know, I, I, I thought that that was sort of like the, the, the direction that would be um, kind of considered like the next level. But in fact, um, I think a lot of the things that I grew up, you know, grew up with, a lot of the lessons I grew up with um, have, have made me much more suited to kind of doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it took me, you know, about uh, 12 years of my career to figure that out. (laughs) And, and still learning, I'm sure. Right. Oh yeah. Mm Yeah. So um, I was kind of perusing your website and, and there was a section where you talk about the rewards of, of cooking and it really is such a wonderful uh, I'll say hobby for some, and in your case, you know, it really is at the core of your business. Can you tell me a little bit about mealtime in your house growing up? Yeah. So cooking was always really important in our family, and it wasn't in, important in the way that it is for so many people today, in that, you know, today it's really kind of an expression of creativity and um, pleasure and sort of a way to kind of connect to other cultures. And, and for my family, it was very much um, about kind of living economically and practically. And that, of course, you know, of course you would, um, you would make your cake and your bread and your jam and everything from scratch because they would be better. And also they would be they wouldn't cost as much. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was a very kind of 
um, economical American household approach to um, cooking. And the lessons that I got from that are, you know, it's, it's funny because it was completely um, foreign to it. Like a lot of my friends, in fact, I had one of my uh, friends from childhood, we joke about it now, but she used to cry when she came over for dinner because my mom would serve things like asparagus or, <laughs> you know, and there weren't options. It was kind of like what my mom made was what you ate for dinner. And it was always, um, you know, she cooked seasonally and like before it was chic to do so. Oh, yeah, and, that's great. You know, and in fact, a, a strong memory I had as a child is going to the grocery store with her and feeling very frustrated because my mom rarely made a list because I wanted to have a list so I knew exactly what we were getting and how long it was going to take us. But the way my mom shopped was she wanted to see, like, she wanted to look at all the meats and see which ones really looked the best mm. um, and were priced okay yeah. before she would buy them. And then she would figure out what to do with them. Mm. Um, and. I think that's really, that's what everyone now is aiming to do, to have that sort of level of comfort with cooking where they, they can just um, kind of cook anything. And, and there is obviously now this obsession with getting um, the, you know, the best quality ingredients, ideally local, yes. natural, you know, and, and now the fact that they would be seasonal, seasonal is now sort of expected. We've kind of made this full shift towards that again. Yeah. And, um, but these things that I grew up with, you know, that are now sort of part of the um, <laughs> norm among people who care about food, um, we're just, um, we're, we're frankly just um, a, a kind of ordinary norm in my family. And, and um, I had no idea then, of course, that the, these were these really kind of powerful and really useful um, ways of looking at cooking, that it was really about um, good flavor and being around the table. And of course, you know, you didn't go out to dinner because that was really a luxury. Right. Oh, that's, I think that's one of the biggest differences um, from our years growing up and, and what people today do. I just think there's so many more um, eating out than cooking. And of course, in New York, I would say that that's kind of the norm Probably for many reasons, there's so many options, but people don't have the big, the big, big kitchens to be cooking in. Yeah, that's, I, I would say that is, while that is true, you know, it's definitely, um, I mean, the farmer's markets here have exploded over the past, you know, since I've been here since, since 1997, you know, I, there was just a handful of green markets when I moved here. Now there's, you know, 30 plus and and, you know, I, people are buying fresh ingredients because they are cooking, um, even in their small kitchens. I think that it has become clear to people that it really um, has a big impact on your health and your happiness and your sense of home if you um, are doing at least some cooking. I think the difference is, is that because people have so many choices, it, it is a choice to cook, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's less of a, something that you had to do out of necessity. Yes, um, yes. And I think for a while there was that that feeling of freedom of like I don't have to cook and therefore I'm not going to. And I think that that has sort of drifted back towards well I don't have to cook but I'm going to choose to cook. Mm. And maybe it's only two days a week, but I'm going to do it because it's satisfying. It brings us around me and my kids around the table, and I'm eating better and I'm supporting my local farmer. That's you know right. there is yes. this kind of a more evolved mindset around. 
um, why why one would cook, and that there there are important traditions that we don't want to lose. Mm, yes. Obviously, this does not um, this is a a certain kind of segment of our culture, and not everyone. But I do think that you are seeing. I mean, I have I feel like we since I have been covering food as a writer and um, editor, you know, since the late '90s. It's just the the kind of spread of um, interest in food and interest in um, health and interest in farming um, and where your food comes from has just um, really exploded and it's been very exciting and I think that you're starting to I mean Chipotle is a great example of a you know a a brand where it's it's very mainstream it's you know it's it is approachable for most people not everyone um, and their whole intent is to bring, you know, good, good food to people. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And, and I think one of the other things is now that in today's world, there are people like you who are teaching and, um, you know, showing and just really inspiring people, uh, people who were not innately interested in, in cooking are less intimidated by it. There's, you know, there's just so much more interest in yeah. it. And I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons for it, but one of them is definitely food television. <clears throat> you know, food television um, brought these ideas to people. They, you know, they allowed people who had never seen, you know, some some of these dishes before, or even who didn't know how to cook. Mm-hmm. You know, even if they still don't know how to cook, but they they see good food being made on television. I do think that that has had this, um, <clears throat> you know, very powerful impact on people's understanding of. A, that food can be exciting, it can be delicious, it can be different, and different is actually interesting, yeah. um, and that there's this whole world to explore, and I, I think that, you know, that has, you know, affected the, you know, the, the a whole generations of, in, you know, interest in food, and it has spawned this whole, um, <clears throat> you know, movement of lower-priced, really interesting restaurants. Um, you know, yes, you could say that there's a concentration of them in urban areas, but I think you're really starting to see like, you know, great cooking and not necessarily fine dining mm-hmm. um, all over the country. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really fun. exciting. And I think, it that, is. I think, yeah, yeah, it is fun. And I think it has made people more comfortable with, um, with food generally. And I think it at the, in their homes, you know, I even just thinking about like the editors who we hire and, you know, often we hire people who are coming, you know, they're out just out of college or a few years out of college they know so much more about food than I did. And I was, you know, I was really, you know, I worked in restaurants in college. I, you know, I worked in Europe right after college. And I just think like their comfort level with um, different cuisines is, it's super impressive. And I just think it's, is really exciting for, um, you know, what, uh, what food means in our culture in the, in the future. Yeah. And, and you know what else is interesting? Some of the foods that, you know, our, our moms and dads cooked when we were growing up, and and now they're kind of coming around again. And I have to mention Brussels sprouts because my mom would cook those when we were kids, and of course we we ran away when you know she was cooking those. It just it wasn't appealing, and now um, you can't go into a restaurant without there uh, being a dish, and and they're delicious. They're amazing. They've been cooked, you know, so many different ways. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I do think that just focusing on the Brussels sprout, it, 
it is fair to say that in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't always treated very nicely in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, they weren't, you know, like today they're deep frying it and serving right. it with sriracha. Bacon and, like and cheese and, yeah. Delicious. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and instead of, it was like kind of overcooked and. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, swimming in butter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they, they, they've also learned to treat some foods a little bit um, better as yeah. well. That's so funny. So you, you mentioned um, you, your time at the New York Times between 97 and 2008, I believe it was. You were a reporter and a food editor. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know because I'm a writer, but I just, I, I know from talking to people and reading how, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it's a lot of pressure to come up with something on a regular basis. So where did you go for your inspiration um, for those articles at that time? So I was a I was uh, for the first seven years I was a feature writer in the weekly food section of the newspaper and that meant in I, in fact I would say I had the opposite problem which is that because I could write about most things I wasn't just a restaurant reviewer and I wasn't just writing about recipes I was really writing about you know makers farmers uh, chefs trends you know and um, cooking um, cooking trends as well. I, I had almost too much to write about. And yeah. so it was really a matter of, you know, when you're writing for a, like, it was it's a national publication, it came out weekly. There, there, there's just, there was so much even just within New York city that was kind of changing and, and going on. Um, but I think actually I was often trying to, the, the struggle was to lift my head and make sure that I was looking for stories that were outside of what was right in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that's, I think when you're a writer who is covering, you know, any newspaper job is, can be kind of grueling, right? Because there's a really fast pace. And I think that's only exacerbated by um, the age of the internet when, you know, blog posts are, are much more um, ephemeral. And so writers are even at a faster pace now. But, um, you know, when you are doing something, when you are working at that kind of pace, you do... Um, even though I was writing about food, and so you wouldn't think that necessarily it sounds like a kind of fast pace or pressured. It is actually when you um, work at a place like the Times where you're really, you're kind of covering what's happening nationally. And we're a pretty big country. There's a lot going on. And actually internationally, I, I also wrote, you know, stories um, from other other countries as well. And um, and so I think actually being disciplined about like what is a, a really good story and, and pushing yourself to find something that is, um, so that it ha- you know it's going to have a great narrative and that um, is newsworthy and isn't just like the latest trendlet. Um, that that's really the struggle. But it's, it was a great, it was really great training for um, teaching me how to uh, use my time efficiently, figure out very quickly who are the best people to talk to. Um, and because it was newspaper and the and the shift um, in the media landscape was already underway. You know, you're always doing everything on like no budget. Um, it was. It ended up being great training for being an entrepreneur because you're you're practicing. I was practicing skills that I use now every day, which is, you know, being really efficient with my time, um, making sure that I that we're working with the best people and or that I'm finding the very best job candidates for roles at the at the company, um, and 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 moving quickly and kind of constantly pushing pushing myself. So um, I didn't know it at the time, but you know, being a food writer at the New York Times ended up being really good training for running a business. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, when you, and of course, one of the major um, 
things that you have to do when you own your own company is uh, hire. And I, I was reading recently, you spoke about, uh, you actually wrote a piece about the importance of diversity within your company because you heard from your your fans and your followers. Can you tell me about what what you see as the importance of diversity within an organization like yours? Yeah. So, you know, we set out to be a company that really supported people in their kitchen and home life. And that, you know, if somebody was, and, it, and we, our goal was to be inclusive so that if somebody was a really experienced cook, they would find, you know, other like-minded cooks, they would find inspiration, they would, um, it, it would be a, a great resource for them. Also, if somebody had never cooked before or they were really curious and they, or they, you know, they were just like starting out, this is like their first apartment and they didn't know how to set up their kitchen or, you know, they, they were really looking for information and that was, and that wasn't um, coming from a company that was like speaking down to them. We wanted to serve them well as, as, too. And mm-hmm. I think that we have done generally a very good job of that. Um <clears throat> In, in terms of like that, that sort of broader spectrum of serving people. But I think what we realized over time is that, you know, we, again, this is very much um, in, in sync with what we just discussed about how the, the sort of changing uh, food landscape in, in America is like, it is, it's complex and there are lots of different kinds of cuisines and lots of different kind, like levels of cooks and different, like people who have different backgrounds who are coming to the kitchen with um, things to share and uh, things that they want to learn. And, you know, at a certain point, we just started hearing from our readers that, you know, hey, if you look on your team page, I'm just seeing like the same kind of person over and over and over. And how can you be really kind of uh, this um, universal resource for and really reliable resource for all kinds of um, cooks and um, and across America. Mm -hmm. And we felt like, Hey, that's a fair point. (laughs) And, um, it wasn't, it wasn't an intentional thing. I think when you're starting a company, you're relying a lot on kind of word of mouth and moving quickly. And, um, the feedback came at a, at an interesting time where it was like, wait a second, actually we're no longer, I mean, we're always kind of, I think that our MO is kind of scrappy as a company. Um, but we're no longer at the place where we're like working out, out of my home kitchen <laughs> and, you know, really, uh, like working out at cafes, like we now have an office and we have, you know, we have enough people that yes, we can take more time when we're hiring and we can, um, you know, uh, you know, we, we can hire, make the efforts to hire a broader, um, group of people that better represent the people we are, who are our readers and our shoppers. And um, not only that, because, you know, as you know, diversity has a lot of different facets. And I think that's something that's really important for us not to lose, you know, not to forget is that like the content itself, you know, like we, we were, it wasn't that we were focusing on any one, any one cuisine, but it felt very kind of general. And there were a lot, there are a lot of different kinds of cooking that are happening in people's kitchens across the U.S. And we, we have an opportunity to really kind of highlight that. And there's all sorts of amazing bloggers and writers out there these days. And, you know, we were sort of, I think, um, maybe reliant on, on kind of like who we already knew rather than really kind of 
reaching out to a to a broader group and um, and you know frankly enriching our content and we've done that you know we've made some efforts and you know we feel like um, you know this isn't you know we're not <laughs> we're not doing this out you know because we're doing we're doing this because people brought this to light and it may, it resonated with us and we felt like um, it it feels like the the right thing to do and of course you know um mistakes will be made along the way and you know we're learning we have internally we have a diversity committee and we talked about you know everything from our content to our hiring to how we um you know our photography and um and i, I you know frankly i just think it's been a great in, improvement in like who we are as a company yeah and, and, and i it, think it will you know i it will make for a better company. That's right. I think it, what it does, too, is it kind of opens doors for more creativity, right? If you're tapping into mm-hmm. uh, different cultures and different people and different food. and But I appreciate what you, were, what you said when, you're, when you first start out as an entrepreneur. You're kind of reaching right into, you know, your network of people that are right there beside you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, naturally things take on a, a certain shape. And then... Um, when you are more, um, you know, once your business is really steady and, and up and running, you can take the time to breathe and start looking at ways to improve it, right, and 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 expand it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, <laughs> it's an endless, and I think it's really the most fun part is that your company, especially internally, kind of takes different shapes all the time. And there's always like new things to learn and new things that you can tackle. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's really what kind of keeps us and everyone on our team motivated. Yeah. Um, listen, Amanda, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about, you know, really what, what one thing you would say makes Food 52 different and has attracted the millions of followers that, uh, that you have. We'll be right back. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website. FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F O L E Y H I L L S L eygroup.com or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. 
In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Amanda Hesser, the co-founder and CEO of Food 52. And I should mention uh, Food 52, I believe, Amanda, came from um, the idea of cooking 52 weeks out of the year. Yes, and yeah. sort of being with you. Uh, along with you or alongside you during that whole time. Yeah, I love that. Um, And and I should also mention you're a co-founder, and so your partner um, is is with you. You're not doing this alone. Her name is Meryl Stubbs, and you started the company in 2009. And something that you said, Amanda, in an interview I, um, I liked, you said, we both knew there were things that we didn't know, but we trusted each other. And I love that because I think, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, we look for people who can kind of take the tasks over that are not our expertise. But at the same time, I think um, having uh, similar values and interests um, can be equally as important. Can you speak to that? Yeah. You know, uh, I can't imagine starting a company alone, and I feel so lucky that, you know, Meryl and I started this company together because we really do have this amazing friendship and working relationship. And it is, it is super important when you're making so many decisions all the time that you can trust each other. And, um, you know, that if she makes a decision, I don't feel like I have to, like, I just know that I'm okay with it. Um, that we almost have this, it's like almost like a secret language that we have developed over the years where we kind of like know what each other is going to feel about something. And, um, and, but it's also, I think more importantly is that when we do disagree, um, and it doesn't that, ha- you know, we don't disagree that often, but when we do, I, I, I never feel, and I think, you know, Meryl feels the same way. Oh gosh, well now I have to figure out how to get Meryl to agree with me. In fact, I feel the opposite. I always feel like, Oh, she doesn't agree. I, I should dig in and really understand why she doesn't think we should do this or why she doesn't like this particular product that we're, you know, we're considering putting in the shop because maybe I'm not seeing something. Yeah. And I feel like that to me was when, when I realized that I had that feeling, that was like, we have that, that's, a, that's the sign it to me as a really um, successful partnership because um, I, you know, I, uh, I, I feel like we're constantly learning from each other mm. and, you know, there are obviously lots of entrepreneurs who do it alone. I, I think it must be really uh, exhausting, and I think it's nice to have um, kind of that second opinion that you really trust that kind of helps helps you in those moments when you're just feeling. Because um, I think there's this there's this false um, idea about entrepreneurs that they're, you know, extremely confident about everything and they know exactly what they want to do and they have this you know perfectly uh, formulated vision for their company. And I, I think 
and I think Meryl and I feel like that that is just um, kind of a bunch of bunk. You know, it's um, while sure we have a very clear vision for what we want to do, there are things along the way, and I think if you're not open to kind of new, learning new things or or changing direction, you're not going to build a great company because it's not just that your company is evolving and changing, but things around you are evolving and changing, and you need to be able to react to them. That's right. And so, um, you know, and there's just like, I think if you don't have doubt, then you're probably not a great entrepreneur because you're not um, questioning your actions and and looking for a better way. Um, So, you know, it's funny because it's only been written about recently, but there you know, there's um, a fair amount of entrepreneurs struggle with depression. You know, I think that there is a lot of self-doubt and there's a lot of strain um, in in starting a company, any kind of company. And um, so it's really uh, nice to have a partner who you feel like you can rely on. And I think that in addition to just the sort of daily decisions and bigger decisions, you know, when one of us is getting tired or just like needs a break, you know, it's nice to know that you have another person who's going to um, pick up the slack for you. Yes, yes, I agree. You know, none of us make the right decisions all the time. And so it is, it's nice to just have someone that you can say, what do you think? You know, what do you think of this? And then, um, as you shared earlier, having someone who, who really sh- is sharing your vision might see something that you don't. Um, and it could, you know, it, it's exhausting at times, right? When as an entrepreneur, you have so much on your shoulders at all, you don't go home and forget the job ever. So thinking about it 24 seven, nope. right? <laughs> it can be exhausting and scary and scary. Um, which brings me to a question. So, you know, there, you have taken risks and, and you've, um, you know, started a company in an industry where there are other people doing similar things. Um, for my first question is what I mentioned earlier, how, in a sentence, how would you say food 52 is different? Um, what is it that has allowed you and attracted so many fans and, and readers and followers to your site? Can I answer that with two things? Because I, I think, you know, the the thing that we do differently from everyone in our space um, is that we have this one, we've created this one world essentially where you can get everything in your kitchen and home life. And that is everything from like meet other people. It's, you know, we're community-based. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, we you you can buy goods for your kitchen and home. We have a shop. We have content that covers, you know, recipes, DIY, home, uh, travel, wellness. Um, we have, we're sort of this <laughs> 360 resource. We have cookbooks. We have, we are, uh, you know, we're, we have a big presence on social. So we're, we have a podcast. We're kind of meeting you where you are and giving you kind of anything that you, um, hopefully serving you well in any way that you need in your kitchen and home life. That is a definitely different from say our other like our media competitors who um they have fantastic content um but they don't have a shop or if they're a a home and kitchen store um there are there are companies like that um but they don't tend to have a community and content so that's kind of how we differentiate ourselves in terms of like what how we serve our uh readers and shoppers 
And um, the hotline, I right? I say that the hotline, I and think, and the hotline is, as well. Yeah, a awesome. place where you can ask questions. Right, yeah. right. Um, but, but, but it's really, I think, ultimately, it comes down to, I think, what people become really attached to, and um, is the tone and the the kind of voice of our brand, and that we are inclusive and accept, accessible, while also, um, you know pushing you to try new things and improve and step things up. And, you know, I think that, um, that kind of that the tone of, um, of our, of our site and, uh, and the kind of, and when I say tone, I mean both in the, the sort of editorial voice, but also like the, the look and feel of our photography and everything, um, is, I think is really ultimately like what people kind of, identify with and aspire to and feel um, kind of excited to connect with. And so that I think shouldn't be lost outside of the kind of larger business model um, because it's really vital to who we are. We could be serving people in all these different ways, but if we did it in a way that didn't really speak to people, it would be a fail. And that's really where I think a big lesson that Meryl and I brought you know, with us from our kind of earlier in our careers in editorial is that editorial voice is, is just, is really everything. And um, because especially now with the internet where there are so many different, you know, (laughs) uh, brands talking to you or talking at you and um, kind of um, competing for your attention, I think having, um, you know, it's really important to us that our brand is accessible and personal and um and feels like you know a a friend you can connect with Mm. yeah i love that so in other words when people come they you know they feel they're an equal they're 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 at a place where everybody is equally important and things that they're seeing and reading are attainable um to implement into their own lives yeah that's that's really Mm -hmm. important and that's and it's important that it's it is i want to point out that it's not there are certainly brands that are accessible, but we often have felt that they are dumbed down and they kind of, in a way, speak down to their audience by making things, you know, quote, easy and simple and fast. And, you know, we tend to come at it in a different way, which is that, yes, that's sort of implicit. We want things to be accessible and whether that's through, you know, being speedy or um, easy to follow, fine. But we really, it's about the pleasure of like living your life well. And that's how we, that's how we, um, that's how we approach everything. And we feel like that is an important distinction um, also with, with who we are as, as a company. Yeah. I'd love to get a little bit more insight about you yourself, you know, uh, Amanda behind the title of CEO. And um, I know that you live in, in Brooklyn with your husband and your two children. You have two uh, twins, yeah. I should say. And um, yeah, T- tell me what some of your favorite, your own favorite family traditions are, things that you practice on a regular basis at home with them. Yes. Um, we always, uh, well, so in, I'll tell you a couple of them. In the morning, um, over breakfast, my husband always reads to our kids and he's read all sorts of books. Um, uh, they just finished, uh, time and again, <laughs> um, have read, um, 
lots of adventure books and just, and they take like sort of months to get through given that we, you know, our kids are sort of rushing through their morning, their morning rituals to get ready for, for school. But it's like become this very important part of our morning mornings as a family. And I think it's, um, it's just been really sweet because you can see our kids, they're not fully awake yet. And they're in this sort of slightly dreamy state and they're, you know, eating their cereal or whatever they're having and, um, and listening to him him read and so their day starts with kind of imagining and I think that's that's been a really nice thing that my my husband has um, brought to our um, kind of daily family life and then you know we do have dinner together um, and we didn't always in the when they were younger it was you know they ate earlier and um, and frankly like you know the business was younger and things were a little crazier and so it was harder for me to get home on time but now that they're they're staying up later and uh you know we we all eat dinner together and um our kids have done have started this for some reason you know they just they loved the idea of like always saying cheers before um we eat um and so that's something that we do <laughs> very regularly they're very insistent that nobody touches their food until we all clink, clink our glasses together oh i love that yeah that's milk, great milk or what have you <laughs> um so that's yeah we have like sort of little things like that and um i, I mean that's another thing that we do as a family that i i have really um come to appreciate is road trips and i mean sort of old old school you know we um, we did this a couple of years ago. We left New York City um, with we had tickets to the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, and we had no other plans, and we had ten days to fill and oh, a car. Wow. And that That's an it. adventure. And That's a really, risk taking. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was sort of. I think you know a lot of families experience this feeling of like being overscheduled and a lot of frankly kind of logistical stress. Mm-hmm. And we thought it would be good for our kids to experience. Um, having no plans and really just kind of figuring things out as we go and, um, and, and embracing that and sort of celebrating that as, as a fun activity. So we did that trip. We came, we went to Nashville and back. We've driven from Seattle to San Francisco this, this uh, spring. We're going to go from New Orleans to Charleston. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of, you know, getting our kids out of the city. I think when you grow up in New York, you, you can have a very, I think any city, right. You, you kind of, have a very different existence than you do in other areas of the country. And, you know, I grew up obviously not in a city and in the woods really. And, um, I don't, I want our kids to, we want our kids to get out and, and, um, see other places. Yeah. Discover, discover what they enjoy. Right. Do you, do you see any of yourself in either your, your son or daughter is one of them more like you? There are little bits and pieces of, I think, you know, we, that both my husband and I see in our kids, but in their own um, kind of formulations. And it's very kind of fun to see. I mean, definitely um, my husband and I are both quite competitive in, in different ways. And uh, our son is extremely competitive. I think we, we sort of joke that our competitive gene like fused and then like had a multiplier effect. <laughs> <laughs> is, is he an athlete? Does he play sports? But, yeah, he plays sports. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. He, and our daughter is, you know, she's, she has, um, she, she definitely has a, I'm going to go my own way, um, aspect to her, which I, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And of course, you know, today when we think about our, our daughters, um, 
and trying to, you know, live our lives by example, um, you're certainly doing that for her in, in, in showing her that um, she can either create the life that, you know, she wants and have her own business or, or perhaps pursue something. Um, I One of the things I was thinking about when I knew I was going to have you today and, and going back to, to your business and company and food in general, is there is there a discovery or, or a couple of discoveries, food discoveries, I'll say, that maybe you have had that you're most excited about or um, – you know, one one of the ones that you're most proud of. I would assume there's a lot of experimenting always with different foods and spices and recipes. And uh, I had read that you know adding maple syrup to a vinaigrette. Um, and I don't know if that was your discovery or, or someone that you work with. But is there something that you can? That was Merrill's. Was that yeah. Merrill's? You know, do you is that yeah. something you do on a daily basis? The experimenting with different. And is there someone that that you love that you could share with us? Sure. Um, I'm trying to think of things that I've been sort of making lately. I, you know, I do, I do cook a lot, but I do it all on the weekends. Um, I don't really cook during the week. So what I do is like, like on Friday, I map out a menu for the next week and then do the shopping. We happen to have uh, something called Fresh Direct where you can order online and then it gets delivered, which is a dream. I have to say. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. And I go to the green market to like supplement, you know, and, uh, uh, and then I cook often on Saturdays and Sundays and um, do the different components. And so one of the things I've been super into is just um, it actually it was a recipe on Food 52 that um, where you cook you cook rice in coconut milk and then you crisp the rice and and then you crisp you make kind of basically like a rice pancake um, in a nonstick pan. Um, and our kids just love it because, mm. it, you know, it, it can go with, it sort of is this great kind of, um, you know, it can be a bed for any kind of like curry or lots of different kinds of um, dishes. But it also is just like great on its own or even like with a fried egg on top because you get the like crispy rice bits and then the soft, the fragrant coconutty mm. rice. Um, so that's something that I've been kind of playing around with generally over the past. It's also influenced by if anyone has been to um, the restaurant Squirrel in LA, where she has, she kind of became known for taking rice and like cooking it and then deep frying it. So it's like these little kind of crispy rice puffs that, um, and then she put them in salads and put them in these different kinds of like grain bowls and things and um, super delicious and Mm. kind of adds this nice texture to dishes. And so it's kind of inspired by that. I've been, playing around with different recipes that um, kind of, I, I, I feel like I'm trying to expand. I, I think I probably gravitate to like pasta and potatoes because that's kind of what I grew up with, but I've been trying to force myself out of that and into like <laughs> a, a, a wider, wider world of grains, you know, and uh, just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, c- coconut has become very popular of late, not just in food, right? I mean, it's really the coconut water and the coconut oil yeah. and the coconut milk. Well, one of my favorite ingredients um, is coconut yogurt. There is a um, a brand in made in New York called Anita's uh, coconut yogurt, and I think it's above and beyond like way better than any other that I've seen on the market. And it's um, it's I mean, it's it's delicious. I put it in uh, you know I put it in like. Um, soups. I put it in um, 
you know, oatmeal. I, I just eat it mm. with um, fruit and honey, and um, it's really delicious. Um, I do think um, that's been – and also there's increasingly um, – there's a brand, a brand of ice cream in, in New York that I think is now going national called Van Leeuwen, and they make um, delicious vegan ice cream with coconut milk. Mm. It sounds delicious. I'm still so, thinking. Yeah, I'm still thinking about the rice. Yeah, with the coconut the milk. Um, that's just a great little. You know, I never would have thought of that. And that's that's something I can do. <laughs> I could definitely do that at home. Um, you, you know, you collaborate with other artists and um, to create. Well, first of all, you have you mentioned the shop. You have a shop. If you go to your website, there's a shop, and and there's the hotline, which I think mm-hmm. is awesome because we, um, <laughs> us lay folks, we always have questions, and the fact that we can go there and ask a question, especially around the holidays, I think is a fantastic resource. How would you describe? Well, I mean, I I ask questions on the hotline too. You know, that's uh, because I, there are lots of things that I don't get, and I rely on our community to help us with. Yeah. So there are things in cooking that Google can't answer. Yes, right. Well, I think it's probably endless. The The possibilities around cooking are just endless. And probably every day people are discovering new things. Mm-hmm. What I was curious about is what? how would you describe your own style? So when you're thinking about collaborating with other artists for products, you know, for the home section of the shop, how, how do you describe your own style? Are you a minimalist? Do you like color? You know, what is it that... Um, you gravitate toward? I think that we, that Meryl and I are drawn to, you know, like nice natural materials like woods and ceramics and um, <clears throat> things that have like nice textures. And I think that we tend to skew towards, um, I would say, softer tones. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, if I'm thinking about our, like even our, where, you know, her house and, uh, our apartment, you know, I, it's all, it's, it tends to be sort of more kind of neutrals and earth tones. And, um, uh, but it's, it's not that we don't sell anything with color. In fact, one of our kind of best selling products is a red, um, stove cocotte, uh, which is like a, um, kind of like a stewing pot. And, uh, but, you know, I think that, um, it, it, this, this is sort of comes from our belief in like in the kitchen you know, when it comes to things like dinnerware, we feel like the food is really like the star of the show. Mm, and yes. so it's nice to have plates that allow the food to shine and that they become the, the sort of animated um, part of the um, visual as opposed to the plate being kind of busy and having a lot going on yeah. and distracting from the food. So a lot of it is kind of using, like, you know, we like a kind of comforting palette uh, that, um, you know, w- with room for like pops of color, but, you know, I think that I, you know, we grew up in very different places, Marilyn and me, but I do think like this also does come, come a bit from childhood certainly, um, is, is the kind of color palette and feeling that I had, um, growing up, like my mom's house had a mix of modern furniture and antiques and, and the antiques I say are, were often things that were just simply handed down from other family members or that she might've picked up at mm-hmm. like a, um, a yard sale. I mean, it wasn't anything necessarily fancy, but I think that that has kind of, um, that mixing of different materials and mixing of things of different from different periods. Um, it comes very naturally to me and I think to Meryl as well. And I think that has had a, um, an impact on like, you know, 
what shows up in our shop. But I also want to be clear, like we have a buying team and they have uh, added their own perspectives. And I think that it's really, um, you know, it's driven by um, kind of our overall aesthetic, but there's, you know, because we're, uh, you know, we've gotten to be a bigger size. It's definitely, we, we are looking to our team to be adding their perspectives as well to make it um, a better experience for all shoppers. And so that it's not so uniform. It has a very strong point of view and a kind of core of products, but that it's, um, it's more than, than just that one perspective. Yeah, it, it needs to be diverse, right? It needs to be diverse. I would say, you know, those soothing tones yeah. and natural colors and all, there's such a calming effect to that. I know for me personally, I do uh, feel good surrounded by those kind of neutral tones, and but the, the pops of color are always something that adds interest. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we, we have um, about... Yeah, I always find, like, I you know, I think... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, we just have about one minute left. Go ahead and finish what you were going to say. I was just going to say that, you know, I, I think part of it comes from, too, living in New York, where there's a lot of different kind of stimulation all around you all the time. And um, I think I've always felt, felt this, but it has been underlined by living in a busy city, mm-hmm. um, is that I, home is definitely an oasis for us. And I think that... Um, you know, having your, your home and your oasis kind of reflect whatever kind of mood you want it to, to be is really important. And it so um, this, this happens to be our style, but others, others, you know, we welcome others as well. Yeah. Well, listen, Amanda, it was so great to have you this afternoon. I appreciate your taking time um, to talk about yourself and your family and your company. And I wish you continued success with Food 52. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. And we'll be sharing your uh, your website and information so people can find you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. That's it, everybody, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Have a great week. <laughs>